This morning, let's go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. And we will pick up with verse 4 this morning. And my title for this message is a repeat of last week, but adding the number 2. So last week was Avoiding Spiritual Laziness, part 1. So today, Avoiding Spiritual Laziness, part 2. I know, I am very creative. So, we're just going to keep going. Now, uh, Hebrews chapter 6, and my goal is to work from verse 4 down to verse 8 for sure, and we may get 9 through 12. But let me quickly say a few things to catch us up to speed with where we were and where this is going this morning. Last week, we began this theme of spiritual laziness. And if you would, go back up and look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. He says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So that's all we focused on last week, and it was this main point here. He was talking about somewhat of a very complicated topic about Jesus Christ being compared to this mysterious figure called Melchizedek. And we walked through that, and he it's as if now he comes to a point in verse 11 here, and he said, I, I need to go on. I have more to tell you. There's more that you need to understand so you can grow spiritually. But it's difficult to explain these concepts to you because some of you have gotten very dull of hearing, my translation said. That dull of hearing phrase meant lazy in the ears, lazy in their understanding. He wants his listeners here to press on to greater spiritual maturity. But some of them were not at a good level. They were at a good level of spiritual maturity, but they had fallen back. They, they basically got lazy in their spiritual walk. They quit really focusing on growing spiritually and taking in God's truth so they could be greater for their service to the Lord. It's possible that they were facing some public pressure. It could have been that they were facing persecution physically or emotionally, or they could have been facing some situation that was causing them to really shrink back and not be as public with their faith. And he could have been saying to them, you guys need to be careful here because this is you steadily slipping backwards. You're not going forwards, you're moving backwards, and that's not what you need to be doing. So we called this spiritual laziness. His listeners had gotten to a point where he said, you basically need to be taught all over again your Christian ABCs. You need to learn how to count from 1 to 10 when it comes to the things of the Lord. These are things that you've known, but you seem to have just simply gotten lazy and forgotten them again. So we walked through and said a few things about spiritual laziness. How can I know that I'm falling into this trap that he's arguing for here to watch out for? And we said that, well, one of the signs that you could be coming spiritually lazy in your walk with the Lord is you don't know what you should know by now. And I don't want to elaborate all of that, but it was just to simply say, he said here, you should have been teachers by now. And he, I don't think he meant a preacher or even teaching a Sunday school class. He meant you should have been at a point in your spiritual walk 
where you've done it enough, you've walked enough with the Lord, you know enough of Scripture, that when a new person comes to Christ, you can at least share with them, here's how you get started. Here's what you should do in the next few moments of your Christian walk. Here's how to pray. Here's how to have a quiet time, a devotional time with the Lord. Here's how to live for Him. Just the basics. And he says, you need to relearn all that stuff. It's as if you've forgotten it. So I took that to say this. One of the signs that we could become spiritually lazy is if we're honest, we say, I've probably been a Christian long enough that I really should be farther along than I am today. Now that we could all, in a sense, myself included, say, if we're honest, that we should be farther along than we are. Even I would say that. But what I'm meaning that I think he's getting at here is if we're really honest, we should say, man, I've been a Christian for X amount of years and I really don't even hardly pick up my Bible. I barely really pray. I think the only time I pray is at a meal. There's things, if we're honest, we could say, you know what, I, I have not progressed. I'm not where I should be. And he would say, because you're becoming spiritually lazy. And then he went on, though, to say they have an immature spiritual diet. He gave this analogy that I need to keep giving you milk, liquid diet. You should be able to eat solid foods, but you can't handle it. You're not to that point yet. It's as if these people had regressed and became a spiritual baby all over again, rather than growing up to be a stronger spiritual adult. So these would be people that say something like this or think like this. Let's say they've been a Christian for 20 years. They've been in the church for most of their life. And yet 20 years later in their Christian life, they really, if they're honest, don't know much of any more than when they started out 20 years ago. They're not any stronger in the word. Their prayer life hasn't gone anywhere. That's kind of what I think he's getting at here with these are people that have, whether they, they may have not said it audibly, but with their actions, they've let themselves just get comfortable. They're just comfortable where they were 20 years ago, five years ago, wherever it was, and they've just stayed there. They haven't grown at all. And he says, that's why you might have a hard time saying, I just can't understand this stuff. It's because not that the truth is hard to understand. It's because your ears have become hard of hearing. So he was trying to sort of jolt them into realizing and asking themselves these questions. Have I become spiritually lazy? I need to make sure that that I'm not. Well, here's the point then for today's message. There is a grave danger if you remain spiritually lazy. So last week, the argument was, let me make you aware about spiritual laziness. Don't do it. Well, how do I not do it? He said, well, you need to press on. You need to grow up. You need to move on to greater maturity. Don't keep reliving the ABCs. Start learning more and grow. Press on. Today, then, he's basically going to say something like this. What happens if I don't? What happens if I stay a spiritual infant? What happens if I never press on into maturity? So that's today's message, and I'm going to call it the, the grave danger of going deeper into spiritual laziness. So again, what happens if We don't go anywhere. Well, let me read this section, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 3. So he says, This we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age have come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again, the Son of God, to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. 
But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Okay, so here is our section before us this morning, and I want to share some honest truth with you before I dive into this. Um, The danger of unchecked, unstopped spiritual laziness is severe. So let me say that again. I want us to be thinking like this, and I'll, let me explain a few more of why I say I need to be honest about a few things. So he's going to give a strong, severe warning. And it's if, if you don't stop, and if you don't grow up, if you keep going backwards in your spiritual walk, there is a grave danger to staying spiritually lazy. And my point is, the danger is this. I'm going to call it fake faith. So the danger to spiritual laziness is a fake faith. Now, I need to explain that and give you a disclaimer. Here's my disclaimer. This passage this morning we're going to look at from all the commentaries I read and and way smarter people than me that have PhDs in theology and on and on, they have all said this is perhaps the most difficult to understand passage in all of the New Testament. So we are entering into some treacherous waters this morning. I have read 20 plus commentaries. I've spent hours studying for this to try to let my mind hold on to something that I thought, this is it. This really ties it all together for me. And I will tell you that much smarter men and women than I, they all disagree with each other. I'll read one and they say it this way and I read another and they completely undo what the other one said. It, there's so much debate about this passage. It's very, very difficult to interpret. So I'm going to give you this morning my best attempt after hours and hours of study and prayer and just begging God, would you help me grasp this? And I want to be honest, you may find that you disagree with some of my conclusions. I want you to know that's okay. As I preach this today, I hope you'll at least come to appreciate what I tried to work through. And if you disagree with some points I take, then I will be honest and tell you I will certainly appreciate your point of view as well because uh, the challenge with this passage is the reason it's so difficult the Greek wording of it it's not a one-size-fits-all you could interpret it this way and you're per the language it's valid to say that or you could take it another way and again per the words it's valid to say that words have different definitions sometimes depending on how you use it And we're going to run into, you know, well, it could mean this or it could mean that. Both are valid. You kind of have to take your pick based on other factors. So with that in mind, then what I had to do is I really had to look at there's two main options, I believe, in understanding this passage that are the most valid. So I had to take these options and then I had to factor in the rest of the letter of Hebrews I had to try my best to think through this author's mindset. What was he really trying to get his people to understand? Then I had to look at the rest of the New Testament and the Old Testament. And you kind of factor it all together and you come out with this finished conclusion and say, here's here's where I think we're at. So the author of Hebrews says a very strict warning and gives a very stern truth. And it's going to sound very harsh because he says this word, impossible it's impossible to do something for a certain group of people or it's impossible that a certain group of people can come to faith and have repentance so look at verses four and five again with me 
He says that for it is impossible. So here's what's, what's impossible now. In the case of those, so he's going to describe a group of people. And this group of people have certain features that put them in this group he's going to talk about. And within that group, he's going to say, it's impossible that they do something. So with that in mind, let's look. It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, once have taken of the, or once have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. So those people now in that group, they've partaken of the Holy Spirit, tasted the good word of God, been enlightened by the heavenly gift from above. Something's happened with them. Look at verse 6. They have fallen away. That's what they've done. They've fallen away. Now the result is, it's impossible to restore or renew them to repentance. It's impossible. So, that's, this is Pandora's box now that we've opened. Because there's different ways to think through this. How you interpret this passage is going to come down to, I believe, this concept here. We need to ask ourselves if we believe a real, true child of God who has come to faith in Christ. Do you believe it's possible for them to truly lose their salvation? Can someone be saved and then not saved? Can someone be in Christ and then no longer in Christ? Is that possible? If you think that it is possible to lose one's salvation, like really lose it. I'm not saying you professed it and then you just said, sorry, I don't mean it. We're talking, is it possible for someone to have truly been forgiven of their sins? And at a point in time, they abandon it and walk away. Are they now lost? Are they no longer saved? Is that even possible? If you think it is, then you will interpret this passage a certain way. You will come to a a particular outcome. But if you don't think that's possible, if you say, no, I am convinced That scripture teaches if someone has truly come to faith in Christ and their sins are forgiven, they are forgiven for all eternity. They they are never taken back on that salvation. So if that is the view to be taken, then we will come to a different conclusion on this passage. So you have to kind of start working through that in your mind on where do you stand? Do you believe you can lose your salvation or not? Then the other thing we have to do is we have to figure out Who is this group he's talking about? He gave some descriptions of them. He says they have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, and tasted the goodness of the word of God. Who is he talking about? Are these real, tried and true Christians that were saved? Or are these people who were associated with the church? They appeared as though they had come to faith in Christ, but they really weren't. Depending on what you think about these people will also sort of drive how you interpret this this passage. So what view then that you take on this next phrase, have fallen away, will also lead to a certain conclusion. Some say this phrase fallen away means you have abandoned your faith. You have publicly basically said, "I I don't mean it anymore. I used to believe that stuff, but I don't believe it anymore. I've walked away from Christ. I'm no longer a child of God. Or does fallen away mean backsliding? which is our good Baptist term for real Christians who slid into sin and they're living in a season of their life where if you looked at their life, it doesn't appear that they're being very faithful. They backslid into sin. 
So does falling away mean, no, these are people who've abandoned the faith or they're still in the faith, but they've fallen into sin? Again, I will tell you the confusing part is you could translate it either way and you would be valid in doing so. Fallen away can mean they've abandoned the faith. Fallen away can mean they've fallen into sin and they're backslidden. So I'm not trying to confuse you, but if you are confused, that's good. Because I was confused. Everybody's confused. So if you're confused, then you're understanding the deep intricacies of how difficult this is to understand this passage. So I'm going to give you a conclusion, and hopefully we can learn some things from this that God has in store for us. But let me be clear in this. My answer I'm going to give is my preferred answer, so it's number one. But there's a second view that I will tell you is a close, close second place. It's almost number one because it's very tricky which way you go. I have a view. I'll give it to you. But like I said, if you said, oh, I don't think so. I kind of have this other thing here you talked about. That's fine. Hopefully we can still be friends. But I almost thought I'll take this second view, but but I didn't do that. So let's walk through this. And here's my hope this morning. It's not to have a debate. It's not to try to get into all this weird uh, argument stuff in the New Testament. What I really want us to do is try to figure out what is God's truth for us this morning. What does he want us to hear from this passage to make sure we heed the proper warning is my goal. So let me give you some major views on how other people have understood this passage. One view that's out there is that believers can legitimately lose their salvation. So there are people, my grandfather was one of these. Uh, he was called a free will Baptist. And there's other denominations out there that believe this. They believe that you could be authentically saved. You really repented of your faith. You got salvation. But you, over time, through various reasons, you fell into sin. But you fell into sin to the degree that you hit a trigger moment where you basically said, I no longer believe this stuff. I'm, I'm renouncing what I used to profess. And so the view is they were really saved, but now they're not. They were really saved. Now they're really not saved. They were in Christ. Now they're not in Christ. They had faith. Now they, they don't have faith. They walked away. They renounced their salvation. And my question is this. Can someone lose their salvation or abandon it? Can they even throw away their salvation? When we say lose, that's probably a weird word because it acts, it almost sounds like someone stole their salvation or, or they forgot where they placed it. That's not what, we're, what we mean. What we mean is they abandoned it willfully. They, they at a point just said, I, I'm not a part of that anymore. So what about them? Were they ever really saved? Well, here's what I believe the rest of the New Testament teaches. So when we study our Bibles, we have to believe Scripture will not contradict other Scripture. God does not contradict Himself. So we have to factor in all of the Scriptures and come to a conclusion. The rest of the New Testament is clear to me that the answer is no. A person cannot be authentically, legitimately a born-again child of God and then become unborn again and no longer a child of God. God does not adopt you into his family and then throw you out of his family. The language of salvation is a metaphor like that, that we're adopted as children of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You're not born again and then unborn again. You're not adopted by God and then unadopted by God. The Bible says that that's not how it works. A person doesn't really lose their authentic salvation. I want to throw out just a few examples. John chapter 10, verses 27 
and 28 says this is Jesus talking. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So Jesus, I believe, was strong in his wording. If you have eternal life given to you by Jesus Christ, not even the devil himself or anything can take that away from you. You are secure in Jesus's hands. Romans 8, 38, 39, Paul says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Did Paul leave anything out? No. Like he's saying everything. There's nothing out there that could do what? Verse 39. That would be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul, I think, was very clear. Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 13, 14, Paul goes on and says, In him, that's Jesus Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, something happened when you believed in Jesus Christ. Authentically, he says, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I'm interpreting Paul in Ephesians to be very strong to say in his wording, when you became a born-again child of God, putting your faith in Christ, you were indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and he used the word sealed. God has put his seal on you until you get to heaven. You belong to him until you get to heaven, and nothing is going to break that seal. Your salvation is secure. He goes on then, John 6, 37, I'll read another one from Jesus. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus said, I'm not going to throw you out. If you've come to me, I'm, I'm not throwing you out. So I do not believe that that view has biblical merit. To interpret this passage to say, he's talking about people that were real Christians, real children of God, but they fell into sin, they slid so far into sin, that now they're at a point where they've said, I'm no longer a child of God, I'm not a part of Christ anymore, I'm enjoying my sin, I love living this way, so I'm no longer a part of that. I, I don't believe that that is a valid interpretation then because of the rest of the New Testament. So I'm not going to take that view. Now, let me give you um, another view. And this is going to be more where I go. There's a view out there. It's called different names. So the name I'm going to give you is just one I kind of used. Let's call it the false believer view. This is the view that says these people were never truly children of God. They appeared to be children of God, but they weren't. They were with the church. They were with Christ. They were doing all the things. But then at a point, they abandoned that. They left Christ, left the church. But they were never a part of Christ. They just identified with Christ. Outwardly so. Not inwardly of the heart, but outwardly. And then they stopped. These people, this view says these people were never truly believers to begin with, but they were fake believers. They were phony believers. 1 John 2.19 explains a little of this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now in context, if you read 1 John, he's talking about false teachers. But I believe this applies even more broadly. John was saying with 1 John 2, 19, that what about the people that were in the church? They, they were serving with us. They looked really legitimate. 
And now they're not. They're gone. They've abandoned it. What about them? John says, okay, it was sort of a good thing that they left because what that proved is they were never really of your family of God in the first place. So the fact that they removed themselves was really them saying, excuse me, but I'm going to let myself out. This is not who I am anymore. Well, they were never a part of that family to begin with. They were just visiting. They, they got very involved with the family, but they never really were a part of the family. Another view that's popular, and I will admit to you, this is my close second. Some people call it the loss of reward view. This view believes that in this passage, it's talking about real Christians. But they fell into deep, deep sin, backsliding, we may say. So when they see the phrase fall away, they don't take that to mean abandon the faith. They take it to mean they're stumbled. They fell into sin. Well, what, what happened to them? Well, they basically fell into such deep sin that if you looked at their life today, you would not be sure are they really saved or not? Because I'm not seeing a lot of fruit and evidence because they're living in such sin. But, but they had a real confession, but they're in a very deep season of sin. So this view says, well, what's going on here is he's warning them, saying if you don't come out of that, then you're not losing your salvation, but you're going to lose your heavenly reward. Paul speaks to this idea that we will present crowns of service before Jesus at his feet. And they take that to say what he's getting at in Hebrews is you're going to get to heaven, but you're going to really be there by just the skin of your teeth. You will have missed hell so closely you felt the flames right behind you as you got into heaven. You're there, but when you see Jesus and he says, well, what did you do for me in your service on earth? You're going to be like, I, I really did nothing. I just believed in you and I offered no service to you. So they view this as a type of you lost your your reward, not salvation, but your reward of hearing Jesus say, well done, you served me well. 1 Corinthians 9.27 could be a type of this. Paul says, I discipline my body and keep it under control unless after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The word is disqualified. Paul, I don't believe, meant lose my salvation by disqualified. He meant be kicked out of service to the Lord. So they take that to say that could be what he's talking about here in Hebrews is these people are no longer faithfully serving. They're not with the program anymore. They're still saved, but they're not really with it to the point that God may say, I'm kind of going to take you out of this life because you're doing more harm than good now. That, that is a view that could be. So here's my take, and we'll walk through this. I believe these are a group of people that outwardly identified with the church and shared experiences with the church. They shared experiences with Christ, maybe, and with the Holy Spirit. But they were never truly a part of the family of God. They were never truly a part of Christ. Again, I'm very much sympathetic to these other views, but I won't take time to go through all that this morning. I just want to say that's kind of a brief how you could take it. And let's walk through where I really think this is going. These people, I believe, appeared to be legit. They, if you looked at them, they looked every bit as much as a Christian as the next person. They, they were very much a part of the church. They were a part of the life of Christ. Let's look at these words in verse 4. He says, it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. So they've been enlightened at a point in the past. They have tasted the heavenly gift. 
They have shared the Holy Spirit and have uh, tasted the goodness of the word of God. The wording of those can go one of two ways. Like I said, you could say, I I disagree with you. The wording here is very strong. These people shared the Holy Spirit. That meant they had the Holy Spirit, which meant they were saved. And again, I'm sympathetic to that. But let me say this. It doesn't actually have to mean those things. These words enlightened and partake and shared. It actually does not necessitate that these people were indwelt by the Holy Spirit or had received the gospel. It simply means They were enlightened by it. What does enlightened mean? They knew it. They heard it. It had triggered their mind. They're hearing truth about God and Christianity and the salvation in Christ. Remember, these are Jewish people who were converting to Christ. I believe he's getting at some of you are in this church here that are Jews. You're still a Jew. You haven't put your faith in in the Messiah Christ yet. But outwardly, they may have said they had. And what's happened is they're hearing all this good stuff about Jesus and their mind is like, wow, this this is really neat. This sounds really good. There's there could be something to this thing about Jesus here. And then he says that they have tasted of the heavenly gift shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll agree that sounds pretty strong, like they could have been Christians. But let me say this to help us understand this a little bit more. If you remember in Hebrews chapter three, which I don't so I had to read it, but if you were to go back to Hebrews chapter three, we've preached through that before. He uses an analogy of the people of Israel who left Egypt after all the plagues. And they wandered around in the wilderness for those 40 years. And then there came a point where they were supposed to enter the promised land. But something happened. They spied on the promised land. They thought that the Canaanites were stronger and bigger and tougher. They doubted God's word. God said, I promise you, you'll take the land if you go in. But 10 of the 12 spies, if you remember, it was Joshua and Caleb were the only two faithful ones. The rest of them said, we can't go in there. Those guys will kill us all. They're much too powerful. So God said, I tell you what, this generation of Israelites right here, you will not enter the promised land. I will make you wander in this wilderness until you all die off. Your children and your grandchildren will be the ones that get to go in. Their punishment for their disobedience was they were not able to enter the promised land. Now, here's the thing we need to remember. I find that very odd because that generation of Israelites that God said, you don't get to enter the promised land because you lacked faith. What about their background? Think with me for a moment. Those Israelites witnessed God's plagues in Egypt. They saw it firsthand. These Israelites would have been faithful during the night of Passover. Think about that. They would have faithfully killed the Passover lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and followed Moses' commandment at the Passover. They witnessed the plagues. They would have been faithful to the night of the Passover. They witnessed the crossing of the Red Sea because they did it. It was their generation. They saw it. They go in the wilderness. They cry out for water. They witness God just make water come out from a rock. They cry out for food. They witness God rain bread from heaven. They witnessed all of that stuff. In that way, we can say they were a partaker of the good things of God as a Jew. They partook of the heavenly gifts. They witnessed God work powerfully. They shared in those experiences. And yet at the end of the day, they failed to believe. They still didn't. God said, okay, you're not going to go in the promised land. I take that analogy then to say, I believe it's valid for us to say, these people in Hebrews 6 are like those Israelites. They're a part of the church. They're part of the life of the community of Christ. They have heard the gospel, maybe even said they believe the gospel. They've identified with the gospel, identified with the church. They've probably seen a lot of good things happen in the church. They've served. They've been a part of it. 
they've partaken in all the stuff of the church and being in the part of the life of Christ, just like those Old Testament Jews. But yet they haven't crossed that finish line. They haven't put their real faith in Christ, just like those Old Testament Jews I shared with you. They saw all that stuff. They were a, a partaker, but it didn't take full effect in their heart to the point at the end of the day, they didn't fully believe. So these people then, I believe, shared real Christian experiences with other real Christians, but they weren't real Christians. They're like Old Testament Israel that witnessed all those good things God did and still missed the mark. They fell away. The word means when it says this phrase, they have fallen away. It can mean you've backslidden into sin, but it can equally mean you've abandoned, you've walked away, you've renounced a former relationship that you had. So you, it does and can mean that you say, I believe in Jesus, and then later on you say, I, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. I don't believe in Jesus at all. I'm no longer a part of that. You've renounced it. So these people hit a point where they fell away like that. Now, what does it, what does it mean when he says they can't be restored again? Because that sounds harsh. Is he saying they, that if they repented of their sins, that God won't forgive them ever again? If you read this, it sounds very harsh. He says it's impossible to renew them to repentance. So whatever these people have done, he says very harshly here, it's as if something they've done can never be undone. And that's a very weird, dangerous place to be. So again, what's he getting at? Well, the key is going to be in the words restore. Mine says restore. Yours may say renew. Restore, renew. And then there's this phrase, they crucify again. And then there's this phrase, putting him to public shame or holding him up to public shame. So in the passage here, if you have a, a New King James especially, some others may, may say this. I don't want to harp on that, but I do want to point out it can be a little misleading because they translate that phrase fall away to say if they fall away. But technically that word if is not, not valid. It, he is saying they fell away. They did it. So we have to try to figure out what about these people then? Because they did fall away. It's not if they fall away. They have fallen away. How do we understand them? It, well, it's impossible to turn them to repentance. Okay, so will God never forgive them? That's weird. I thought God forgave anybody who called out to him. Yes, there's a lot more going on. Here's what I believe he's saying. The word restore again or renew again is a present verb. That means in the present moment, you cannot restore them again to repentance. Then the words, here's what these people do, what's true about them. He says in verse 6, they've fallen away and then they crucify once again the Son of God to their own harm or their own shame. Then not only that, they hold him up to contempt. So these people, this group we're talking about, here's what they're doing. They didn't just leave the church. They're opposed to the church. They're actively opposing Jesus Christ now. They used to identify with the church. Now they're out of the church, but they're, they're like on a war path of making sure people understand it's not that I don't believe in Christ anymore. I don't like Christ. I don't want anything to do with him. They're crucifying him again, he says. It's as if they're now a part of the crowd crying out for Jesus to be killed. Then he says they put him up to public shame. That word literally means, like it says, it's where you take someone and you try your best to make it publicly known how embarrassing they just did something or how shamed that they should be. So the point is, the wording is, you're, these people are trying to bring 
public shame and reproach on Jesus Christ. The word is presently. They're doing this present today. So he says you presently today can't renew them to repentance. Why not? Because presently today, these people are out there actively crucifying Jesus all over again with their beliefs and their lifestyle. They're actively bringing shame on Jesus Christ. That's why I believe he says you can't renew these people again to repentance. It's not because God will no longer forgive them. I don't think that's the case at all. The burden is on the people. The reason they won't be renewed again to repentance is because they don't want to be. They're actively living a lifestyle of crucifying the Savior all over again and bringing the public shame. I believe then he would say this, if they were to stop that and humble themselves and come to a place of real repentance, I believe God would take them with open arms and forgive them of those sins. But he says, as they are today in this present state and present moment, they will not come to repentance because they're out to shame Jesus Christ. They don't want anything to do with him anymore. They are willfully refusing to repent. So again, who are these people? These are people, unfortunately, we probably all know some of them. These are people, I believe, with my understanding of this, these are people who, unfortunately, you may have known their name, you may have seen them. They were a member on the church books. You may have served on a, a ministry team or a committee with these people. You may have done a lot of good things with, with these people. You may have sat in Sunday school classes and Bible studies together. You may have had talks with them about things of Jesus and living the Christian life. And then over time, something changed. They're no longer with it anymore. They're no longer in the church they're no longer doing those things that they once were doing. They're no longer serving. And I don't just mean that they're no longer in the church. They go a step further. They're actually now out there actively saying, I, I don't believe that stuff anymore. I used to, but that's, that's not for me. I don't even know if I believe in God. I don't know if I believe in Jesus Christ. In fact, I don't, maybe I don't even like that stuff. I, I think this Christian thing is just a whole sham. I think that Christianity is about, you know, the popular things today say, well, Christianity is about colonialization of other countries and indigenous people. I mean, they're just out there trying to bring shame on Jesus Christ in some way, either with their actions or their false beliefs now. We probably, unfortunately, all know people like this. It's sad. And we ask ourselves, well, what happened to them? What happened to them? They were so faithful. I mean, I was in the nursery with them or I was in class with them. We did this and that together. They served and volunteered at this thing. What happened to them? And at a point in time, they, they walked away. Now, again, I'm stressing something here specific. They didn't just walk away and say, I'm not sure. I'm not talking about people who just haven't come to church in a long time because for whatever reason, they just haven't. We're talking about people who were in it, outwardly so, looked like it, very much in it. And now they're not just not in it. They're very much opposed to it. They're just out right there saying, I, no, this is not for me. I don't believe it anymore. In fact, I think this is wrong. I think this belief in Jesus and this Bible and all this God stuff, it's just completely wrong. And in fact, maybe it's bad for society and we should get rid of it. That's who I believe he's talking about. People who are bringing open public rebuke and shame on Jesus Christ, whom they once in the past used to profess. They don't anymore. So, again, who are these people? False Believers, people who appeared to be, but are not. Now, he gives an analogy in verses 7 and 8. He says, For the land 
that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. So now he gives a mini parable. And he says, let's picture a plot of farmland. And the farmland receives the rain. Both sides of the land receive the same rain. The rain's not better on one side than the other. But a portion of the land produces good crops. And the farmer is very proud. He says, this is great, this is awesome. But then the other part of the land that got the same rain, it didn't produce any crops. It produced thorns and thistles. Finally, the farmer gets to the point where he says, we're going to burn that off. Now, I believe farm-wise, if you've ever farmed, I don't know this, I read it, but so correct me if my understanding's off here. But as I understand farming, you would actually burn the land at times to sort of kind of freshen it up, get it to where it will grow again a little bit better. So that's where some say, well, look, he doesn't mean they're lost, like they're going to hell. He means their spiritual service. He means God's going to kind of burn them off, not in hell, but he's going to kind of remove them out and take them on to heaven because they're not producing anything for the Lord. Again, I just really take the view that he's meaning, no, these are people that are the same plot of land, meaning they heard the same stuff. They've shared in the gospel. They've heard it. They've heard the same truth of God, but it didn't produce any fruit. They weren't real with this stuff. So spiritual laziness is, here's what I believe the warning is for us this morning. Spiritual laziness could be a sign that someone has false faith, fake faith. So the point would be to always be on guard to make sure our faith is legitimate. Let me share with you a couple of things I know I'm about at time. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus shared the parable of the sower. And he told a story about a farmer casting seed in Mark chapter 4. And it falls on different parts of soil. Some was good, but other soil was rocky, and then some was very thorny, and then some was, uh, or excuse me, some didn't go deep, and then some soil fell by the rocks, and then some soil the birds picked up. It was very hard. It was surface level. Now, the point of that, that parable was Jesus told his followers in Mark 4, starting at uh, chapter, excuse me, verse 14, the sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word was sown when they hear. Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them, and there are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones whom they hear the word and immediately receive it with joy. So there's a group of people that heard the gospel, heard the truth of God. And if you looked at them, you and me would not think that it was a false response. We would believe they really came to faith. They received it with all joy. It was a very super emotional response. But at a point in time when life changed for them, they didn't produce anymore. They, they, they really weren't in Christ. Jesus says that's the seed that fell on the rocky part. It didn't have any depth, no root to it. But then he said that there are ones then, in verse 18, that are sown among the thorns. They hear the word, but the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches, desire for other things, choke out the word. So four types of soils and only one out of four had a legitimate response of faith. Think about that. I'm not saying Jesus literally meant that if four people respond to the gospel message, only one's really saved. I'm not saying that. But it's interesting that out of his story, only one quarter of the possible responses was a legitimate one. And yet they all heard the same truth, but three-fourths of them had false responses. But outwardly looked as though they were doing some good things. They were really of the Lord. 
So I believe then, this is the point for us this morning. What's his warning here? Let me wrap all of that up, okay? I believe the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, don't become spiritually lazy. Don't fall back on your faith by regressing. Don't, don't lack maturity in your walk with the Lord by getting lazy and falling back. Press on to maturity. And here this morning he's saying there is a great danger if someone throughout their majority of their life stays in a place of spiritual immaturity and they never grow. What's the danger? It could be that their faith was never true to begin with. I believe he's using this as a warning to each of us to say, I look at you and you look at me. I mean, you hope I'm saved, right? You call me to be your pastor. I look at you and hope you're saved. I hope that you're a child of God. But at the end of the day, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't peer into your soul. All I know is what you've told me. All I know is what I see. But at the end of the day, you could have fooled me. I don't know that. Only you and the Lord know that. And I think here he's trying to get real Christians to try to think about something. Say, so you know what? I know that I'm a child of God. I'm not lost. But it could be that I really need to get it in gear with my spiritual walk with the Lord. Because this is a real warning that if I continue on for the rest of my life in a state of immaturity and I'm not really pressing on, then that could be a sign that I've actually lied to myself about my salvation in Christ. It may have never been real. Because a real child of God, yes, can fall into sin, but they will grow. They will ultimately press on. There's a, it's about our attitude. And the question before us would be to check our attitudes this morning about sin. Do we play and toy with sin or do we take it really serious? Something we need to overcome. Let me share with you what Paul said in Romans chapter 6 that I think helps with this. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? So Paul asked a rhetorical question. Can I keep on sinning as a Christian? Because think about this. You're told that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that's all it takes is faith. You just believe with all your heart. And God will save you from all your sins for all eternity. Then if someone said, that's wonderful. That means I can go live however I want to live. I can do whatever I want to do, right or wrong, and God will always forgive me. Paul says, wait a minute. That is a sign of a heart that was never right with God. Because he says in verse 2, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? If you're a real child of God, you can't willfully continue on year after year after year just living in unrepentant sin and say, God will forgive me, it's okay. Paul says that's a sign that you've never been in Christ to begin with at all. He goes on in verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Jesus Christ was raised by the dead, by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The Christian life, an authentic, repentant heart, yes, we can sin, but it says, I press on to live my new identity in Christ. These people fell away. And I think he's trying to get them to see, don't do that. Not that if you're a real Christian, you lose your salvation, but be on your guard that you are a real Christian to begin with. Is your heart right with the Lord? Peter says in 2 Peter 1.10, make your calling and election sure. The Bible does this over and over. It says to real Christians, you're a child of God and you can't lose your salvation. That's true on the one hand. But on the other hand, you can't get lazy. You have to always be checking yourself, am I really in the faith? Is this me falling into sin because I've never come to faith? 
Or is it, yes, I'm in I'm faith in Christ and I, I need to overcome this and ask for His forgiveness? But only you can know that. I can't. I believe that's His warning for us this morning to evaluate ourselves. Am I spiritually lazy because I've fallen off the track and I need to get back? Or am I spiritually lazy because I've never been in Christ to begin with at all? Is my faith real? 